I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Climate change is affecting the wine industry and is projected to have even more significant effects in the near future. Climate change affects the duration and time of the growing season, the mean temperatures in wine regions, and ultimately what grape varieties are suitable. A few factors of climate change that often go under the radar are the different types of microorganisms present in the vineyard at certain temperatures, long-term changes to water table levels, and the effects of pest migration. Let's first investigate the effects of climate change on the soil. Soil is the largest container, or sink, on Earth for carbon. The Earth's soil holds more combined carbon than plant life or the atmosphere. We need soil and plants to act as carbon sinks, because when carbon is released into the atmosphere in the form of various gases, such as CO2 and methane, it traps sunlight and contributes to the greenhouse effect. Explosive urban development and mass changes in agriculture have decreased the Earth's soil carbon over the last century, leading to global warming, temperature increases, droughts in certain regions, and erratic weather. Heavy carbon content in soil helps to fix soil pH and retain water. So in regions where large amounts of soil carbon have been transferred to the atmosphere, you'll find varying soil pH and lower water content. On the other hand, heavy soil carbon content can indicate a healthy microorganism environment rich in microbes and fungi, the byproducts of which can be nutrients for vine roots. Changes in temperature, carbon, and water levels can affect what kind of microbes live in the soil. And since vines draw nutrients from the byproducts of microbes and microflora in the soil, changes in the microworld can directly change what type of nutrients the vine is receiving. Now let's see how climate change affects plants. Rising temperatures are currently having beneficial effects in some regions, and negative effects in others. In the Mosul, for instance, we've had a string of beautiful vintages that many attribute to increased temperatures. But in Bordeaux, the increased temperatures are cause for alarm. Many chateaux are tweaking their spread of varieties and increasing the plantings of their longer ripening varieties to take advantage of the higher temperatures. Temperature increases in already warm regions can trick the vine into bud break a little earlier, and lead to sugar ripeness before phenolic ripeness. Temperature increases can also affect the water tables. In some cases, this can force roots to go deeper in search of water and increase grape complexity. But in other instances, it can stress vines to illness and death. In some regions, you'll find increased UV radiation. And in certain wine regions, this can lead to higher levels of quercetin, a flavanol that naturally accumulates in grape skins to protect them from UV light. This increase can change a wine's flavor and influence its long-term ageability. And now let's look at how climate change affects vineyard animals and insects. Climate change affects the labor pools necessary to harvest grapes and maintain vineyards. New Zealand's southern tip of central Otago sits right underneath a hole in the ozone, and hats and sunscreen in the vineyards are necessary to avoid dangerous sunburns. Climate change also affects insect migration, which can lead to vine disease and grape destruction in regions that once did not have to deal with such issues. In the Mosul, pests are migrating north from the Rhone, 
and vineyard managers are dealing with certain bugs for the first time in their region. In general, species migration due to climate change can upset the larger ecosystem by introducing pests to new prey, and sometimes the pests will bring their natural predators along with them. So climate change is a real and present situation for the world of wine. In the short term, cooler wine regions are benefiting from the situation, while warmer regions are contemplating new varieties and different strategies. At our current rate of temperature increase, it is certain that the wine regions we know and love today will be much, much different a century from now. The thing about climate change, though, is that industry, pollution, and deforestation in one part of the world can have drastic effects on completely unrelated sectors, such as the wine industry. And while many wineries are going green and decreasing carbon emissions, it also takes effort from other sectors too, and awareness of our own individual habits. Another couple of trees in my backyard can trap more carbon in the soil and collectively contribute to fighting the greenhouse effect. Installing a solar panel in your home or business or getting your restaurant to recycle more efficiently could be just one of the millions of tiny steps it would take to save the future of the wine business. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand kathy corson on the show hello how are you i'm terrific nice to see you what an honor to be here. Now, come on. So you grew up in California? I did. What was that like? Born in San Jose and moved down to Southern California when I was months old. I don't know. It's all I knew. But um, grew up in suburban Southern California as soon as I could. I made a beeline north. I've never really felt like I belonged down there. It's two different states. And when did the wine part come into it? Not until college. Um, I took a wine appreciation course on a complete whim when I was a sophomore, 19 years old. I probably wouldn't even be allowed to do it anymore. And uh, wine just grabbed me by the neck and ran with me. Where has that taken you so far? <laughs> well, I'm 40 years ago, this coming June, um, I moved to the Napa Valley, and I've been making wine ever since. So when you got to Napa, what was it like? It was rural. It was poor. It was depressed. It was just scratching its way out of prohibition. But there was this amazing energy. Uh, Robert Mondavi had started his project in 67. Don Chapelet started his in 68. Those were the first two wineries after prohibition. And I got there a few years later, 1975. And then the next year, 1976, the Paris tasting happened. And the rest is history. It just catapulted us onto the world stage. What were your first moves? Oh, it seems, you know, every six months. Um, my first move was between undergraduate and graduate school. I worked in a, a wine bar, wine shop for six months, and then up to Sterling and worked in the tasting room. What was that like? Oh, you know, those were the days, you know, it was sort of the first, that is tramway up to the hill. That was sort of the beginning of, of the tourism that has been evolving over time. And uh, the wines were terrific. It was Rick Foreman making the wines. And um, 
I couldn't stand working in the tasting room. But um, I, during that year, I was running over to Davis and finishing up all the chemistry that I had avoided and started to take the wine classes that year. So a year later, I moved to Davis and got my master's degree very quickly. And I've been making wine ever since. You didn't want to stick around school that long? No. I was finished with school. I just felt like I needed that piece of paper. Women weren't very involved in production in those days. You needed something that said, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Credentials. And what were the classes like at that time? What era is this? The 70s? This is 19... This was um, 1976 and 77. And basically, UC Davis had pulled the California wine business out of prohibition and had you know, everything had gone fallow, the vineyards, the wineries, and they were instrumental in teaching everybody how to make sound wine again. And so um, it was fairly heavily funded by really big wineries. So it wasn't terribly pertinent to what I wanted to do, but it was certainly a good technical foundation. You know, you got to learn that stuff somehow. It's easier to do it in school, really. I know a lot of great winemakers that don't have degrees, but they still have to learn all that stuff. Was it more the winemaking stuff or the vine growing stuff? Well, unfortunately, in those days, it was two different departments, two different buildings. And in fact, I would could have gotten a master's degree in winemaking without taking a single viticulture class. Somehow I knew it was important, so I took them all anyway. But in those days, it was very much departmentalized and it was true out in the wineries as well vineyard managers grew the grapes winemakers made the wine and they sort of intersected when you received the grapes that's one of the most important changes i think over time is that more in the european model winemakers that are making good wine know how important it is to be involved in the vineyards i can't make the wine any better than the grapes that come in the door you think there's been a shift in mindset amongst some of oh, the top producers? Huge, huge. So I don't. I don't think we'd be making wine as, that is as good as it is if we hadn't figured that out. We were on a really steep learning curve all those years for the last 40, 40 years. So you get out of school, and what was your own learning curve? Huge, absolutely huge. In nineteen seventy-eight, I did an internship at Fremark Abbey in Saint Helena. And I'm pretty sure I was the first woman ever in the Napa Valley to actually haul hoses around and um, work in the cellar. That year, there was also a woman at Inglenook. So it's just enormous. You know, there was the, I had a good technical foundation, but it was another whole new education to learn about how the nuts and bolts of making wine. So I did that for a better part of a year. Then um, the industry was just exploding at the time. There were so many opportunities for young people coming out of school. So within eight months, I was running a winery as a full control winemaker, which made no sense at all. There just weren't enough old little old winemakers left to go around. And that's because in the aftermath of the Paris tasting, suddenly there was a lot of interest in California? Well, there was already a lot of interest. There was a lot of energy, all sorts of things, you know, Schramsberg and Fremark Abbey and Chapelet. It was amazing. Phelps soon thereafter. It was, it was already happening before the Paris tasting. It was a very exciting place to be. Who were some of the people you were taking inspiration from at that time? Were there real role models for you? I always like to say, I think I take inspiration from the wines more than winemakers. Certainly, Zelma Long was, was someone to look up to. I never worked for her or with her, but she was running uh, Mandavi when I got to the Napa Valley. So that was an inspiration. But for me, it's really been the wines that are, that are inspirational to me. What are some of those that have sort of been benchmarks for your own palate? Well, I cut my teeth on European wines, which was fairly unusual for somebody from California. And I think that's always informed my style. And um, first wine appreciation class was taught by a, a Francophilic guy. And so all the first wines I tasted were French, and I, that was sort of the whole world. The world was different in those days. There weren't as many places in the world making great wine. So France was sort of the, the center of it. And then it's just, I just love wine. I just, 
I've had the great good fortune. My husband's not a winemaker. And every day that we're home together, which is most of the time in 22 years of marriage, he pulls a wine blind for me. Out of the cellar, it can be from anywhere in the world. And I try to guess the variety, the vintage, where it came from, and just a really simple four-star rating. And then I find out what it is. So that's been hugely helpful. What draws you to wine outside of the taste of wine? Are there things that you like about wine as a subject? For me, wine is alive. I'm a biologist, and wine is a whole series of living systems that conspire to, um, it's alchemy, really. It's not even chemistry or physics or any of those things. It's alchemy, but it's, a whole, it's alive. Even once it's in the bottle, it's alive. So you start running your own winery program, and who were you working for at that time? Well, it was quite a while before I started making my own wine. Uh, my first job after Fremark Abbey was at a winery that's now defunct. It was Everdon on Spring Mountain. It's now, that facility is now Terra Valentine. Made the wine there for two years. And after that, I sort of had a portfolio. And a job came up at Chapelet Vineyard. And I made the wine there for the whole decade of the 80s. That was a wonderful opportunity. It was already a fairly famous Cabernet Vineyard and um, had the great good fortune to spend 10 whole years there and really get to know the vineyards and an awful lot about tannin management because they were mountain grapes. And it's not as obvious, but I still use all those things I learned about tannin from making mountain Cabernet for other people for years. What did it seem like taking Pritchard Hill fruit? and What was it like to work with? Well, it was typical mountain fruit, built completely differently than Benchland Cabernet. The temperature profile is completely different. They're up above the inversion, so the fog comes into the valley every, every single day during the summer. And they're above the fog, so they cool down because of the fog, but the second the sun comes up, they heat up. We wait for the fog to burn off down on the valley floor until 9 or 10 o'clock every day. So they don't get quite as hot up there during the day, and they don't get as cold. So the diurnal shift is, is narrower. The vineyards tend to be well-drained in the extreme. They're rock piles. And the, the wines are just built completely differently. The tannins are much more astringent and aggressive and... The um, the flavor profile is different. It has less of the red and blue sort of bright flavors that Cabernet can make and more of the um, cassis and more brooding, darker flavors. Uh, there can be lots of acidity, but the pH is, is high, which is the opposite of what you'd expect. So they're just built differently. So you can't make a wine... People would ask me if it was a conflict of interest to make wine for other people in the hills and then make my wine as well. And I couldn't make my style of wine up there or vice versa if I wanted to. Do you go back to those wines sometimes these days? And have you checked into some of those 80s Chapelet wines? Not as often as I'd like. They're buried in the cellar and I'm and they're very long lived and I'm sure they're still especially in larger format would be really interesting wines. The decade of the 80s seems like kind of a change period in general for Napa Valley in terms of 85 and maybe a little more technology coming in, a little bit more deeper fruit, a little bit more lusher tannins. Seems like people kind of change their approach during that decade, maybe to yields, maybe to rootstocks. What did you see in general in Napa? We learned so much about growing grapes. That's, that's when all the canopy management work was being done all over the world, in Australia, in New Zealand, at Davis. And that, I think, is the biggest change. Is We've learned about the balancing the growing parts with the fruiting parts. We've learned about getting air and light in. Not too much, but enough. We've learned that we're not Europe. It's hot, and it's we have heat spikes, and we need to protect from sunburn. We've, we've just learned a lot. And I think that has translated directly into better wines in California, Napa Valley specifically. Equipment. You know, the equipment we had in those early days was from the Central Valley and my crusher at Chapelet in those days, I used to call it the wearing blender. 
So we've, we're bringing in much gentler equipment from Europe and have been for decades now, but it made a huge difference in the quality of the wines. Basically, my philosophy is to stay out of the way as much as I can, to be as gentle in crushing the grapes, pumping them over, pumping them around when necessary, and just stay out of the way. Because great grapes make great wine. What were some of those vintages like to work, 80, 81, 82, 83? There was a whole string of great vintages. You know, Napa, Napa has the great fortune of almost never having rain in the summer. And so we're, we're very fortunate to be able to make really, really good wines almost every year. In those days, people picked earlier. Wines were generally in the 12s and 13s alcohol. But it, over that time, we were learning to grow grapes that were fully ripe. And I think that's, for me, the biggest change is I've, my alcohols are still always under 14, but I think that the grapes are more fully and uniformly ripe than they may have been 28 years ago when I started, just because we've learned how to do it. And I've had the great fortune to to source the same three vineyards now for 28 years. So I've really, really gotten to know those vineyards. And I'm involved in the farming. I just don't own the dirt for those three vineyards that go into the Napa. And then it wasn't until the last day in 1995 that I actually had the great fortune to buy a little piece of that bench land between Rutherford and St. Lena where I focus all my energy. What was it like working for Don Chapelet? What was he like as a person? He was wonderful. He Mostly he was very hands-off. I mean, I was extremely fortunate that he really, there was a already a legacy and a history there, and I felt like I needed to honor the style of wines that had been established. But he trusted me completely to do that, and I would generally put a bottle after it was bottled on his desk. He didn't didn't meddle, and that was very, very nice. And he's just a very sweet man. What was the range of wines like at that time? Was it just Cabernet? Or? Oh, no. <laughs> when I first moved to the Napa Valley, everything was planted everywhere. There was Riesling in Calistoga, and there was Cabernet in the Carneros. And it was true of Chapelet as well. We had Riesling, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Cabernet, and Merlot all growing in the same place. The whole valley has learned over time what belongs where, and as difficult as phylloxera coming back through was, it was a it was an opportunity to start moving things more where they belong. And so, Chapelet now I don't believe there's I know there's no Riesling up there. I think the Chenin Blanc is mostly gone, and they're growing Cabernet. This turned out to be a very famous place to grow Cabernet. It's Pritchard Hill, and a lot of other very top producers up there now. So they, they've moved in the Cabernet direction even more than they were then. The 80s was also kind of the start of the Merlot boom, I feel like, in this country. Did you feel some of the effects of that when you were working? There were certainly plenty of Merlot planted. I think that when people thought Cabernet, they thought Bordeaux varieties and blending. And that's still fairly common. Uh, my wines are all 100% Cabernet, but that's pretty unusual. I believe that Cabernet in my little corner of the world can do anything those other varieties can do as well or better nine years out of 10. In a really, really cold season like 11, I might have liked to have maybe some Franc or something that would ripen earlier. But even in 11, the Cabernet got fully ripe on these really gravelly soils. I pick early on early sites. So long, cool seasons are, are right up my alley. So you worked for 10 years at Chapelet, and then what happens next? Toward the end of my tenure there, there was a wine inside of me that needed to get out. That's the only way I can describe it. And I loved making wine from the Pritchard Hill Cabernet. It was wonderful. But there was a wine inside of me that was balanced differently, that was, um, I like to say, both powerful and elegant. Cabernet is going to be powerful. I don't care how you grow it, where you grow it, it's going to be powerful. But it's way more interesting to me at the intersection of elegance. And so um, I had been lucky because over a couple of drought years at Chapelet, we did source some grapes from down in the valley because the crops were so small. 
So that's where I learned that this wine that needed to get out grows on the Rutherford bench. And they're um, very well-drained alluvial soils, but they're loam, so they have good water holding capacity. So when the vines need water in the spring and into the early summer to grow, they've got it. But then because the rains, the rains don't come in the summer, they just stop growing at Verasion and get busy ripening the grapes. And if Cabernet is growing when it ought to be ripening its fruit, it maintains green flavors. If it stops growing and gets busy ripening, it, there's a chance to get the grapes fully ripe without the sugars getting too high. So there was just this wine, and I like to say that I was buying grapes and barrels instead of cars and houses as a young adult. I had a house at Chapel A. I didn't have any obligations. And um, so just started buying grapes and barrels. And that was 1987. I was still making the wine at Chapel A. It was a couple years later when I started to sell my wine in 1990 that I needed to stop running a 30,000-case winery. And I kept small jobs on the side for many, many years thereafter. I made the first few vintages of Staglin Family Vineyard. I made the first 10 vintages of York Creek, the first 10 vintages of Longmeadow Ranch, but those were kind of on the side and uh, to help pay the bills. I made wine for other people all the way through 2003. Did you see stylistically or approach-wise some convergence between those different projects? I think Chapelet certainly. The the model for both Don Chapelet and for Napa in general, I think, were the wines of Bordeaux in those days. And um, so there was definite convergence for me. I mean, I, I had a, a really nice opportunity to play with that elegance thing, even with mountain fruit. And then the Staglin wines were wonderful because they are benchland, right? They're just exactly the in the heart of my favorite place for Cabernet in the Valley. So that was a lot of fun. And then uh, York Creek was back in the hills, you know, and so was Longmeadow Ranch, but I had a lot of experience there. And they were on the other side of the valley, so they were different. But, yeah, I think once a wine is sound, technically, that's its first job. And after that, then you can start to see the, the fingerprint of the person that makes it. So, yeah, I think there were definitely convergences what did the 90s look like in Napa? They were booming. You know, it was it was mostly tech. Silicon Valley was driving us hugely, and it was just a very heady time. A lot of new investment, a lot of um, people getting very excited about Napa Valley Cabernet. So it was, they were heady times. A lot of investment, but at the same time, you were able to find a slice of Rutherford Benchland. How did that come about? Because it's a miracle. I- it's a miracle. Specifically, by 1995, my business was mature. I was selling what I made. I was debt-free. And the economy was, in the early 90s, was was soft. Nothing like we've seen since then. But I think there was a, a short time there where prices in Napa leveled out. I'm not, I don't think they ever went down. And it dawned on me that there might be a short window where we might be able to buy a piece of a vineyard land. So I sent my husband out with the, with the soil map, and he only 2% of the Napa Valley is bale loam, and that's what I needed. I needed bale gravelly loam between Rutherford and St. Lena. And um, so he went out. Much of it's up against the hills. Much of it has trophy homes on it. That wasn't an option. And one day he came home and said, you know that piece right on the highway, it had been for sale for eight years. That was bale gravelly loam. We were told the house was condemned. We were told that the vineyard was AXR and it was at the height of the phylloxera problem. And so it sounded like bare land to us. And on a whim, we put an offer in for bare land. And that was probably, I think we closed escrow on the last day before that incredible boom of the mid to late 90s happened. And so uh, it's just very, very lucky. Very lucky. Then we found out that it wasn't AXR. It was Old St. George. So we didn't have to replant it immediately. We found out that the house was um, in very sorry shape, but it was not condemned. And so um, 
we just had a big project. <laughs> so that probably saved you a lot of money not having to replant the vineyard. I couldn't have done both. The only reason we could build the winery was, one, it was a barn, and two, it was we didn't have to replant the vineyard. And I still haven't. I've come to so value those old St. George vines. I don't know anybody else that would put up with the one and a quarter tenths of the acre, but it just, it's a very special vineyard. So the AXR rootstock was susceptible to phylloxera, so the thought was if it was AXR, you were going to have to rip it out because it was going to die, but it turned out not to be AXR. It's, it turned out to be the St. George that was kind of the old selection that tended to be around the valley. That's what was planted in the 70s, 60s and 70s was all St. George. It's a rootstock that doesn't set fruit very well. It shatters, and so uh, crops are always small on St. George. So over time, St. George was supplanted by AXR, developed by UC Davis, and it was a rootstock that produced much better crops and really good wine. Fabulous wines were made, but they just it just wasn't sufficiently resistant to phylloxera, so it all had to go over about 15 years. It was very expensive. So you bought the Kronos Vineyard in 95, and it had been planted when? 1971. So it's one of the oldest Cabernet vineyards in the Napa Valley. Because a lot of Napa Cab is on a kind of a 20, 30-year replant schedule. That's kind of a new development, and I don't fully understand it. And I mean, production does decline after 20 or 30 years, but not precipitously. I, I really, in my mind, those vineyards are just getting to be mature. So it doesn't make sense to me. What is the benefit of mature St. George fruit? Those vines are just wise. They're old and wise. I think it has to do with root depth. They just come through heat spells with grace and style. <laughs> when all the younger vineyards are really sorry, they're just, they, they know what to do. I don't know how else to explain it. They also have, they set very teeny tiny berries with really thick skins, lots of color, lots of flavor, and they're scraggly clusters. So they're, um, they don't weigh very much, but there's lots and lots of flavor and lots of concentration. So Kronos Vineyard is right behind your winery. It's, it surrounds the winery on all four sides. Yeah. And you've had it for 20 years. Almost. And you work it yourself. Yeah. So Another it, steep learning curve. <laughs> what's it been like working the same vineyard for 20 years? Well, it's wonderful. But the vineyards I source for the Napa are almost 30 years. There's just something about being out there year after year after year. I, I can't put my finger on it. It's difficult to describe. But there's just a feel for the vineyard that you get from just time, time with it. So you kind of know when to pick or when to replant or? Well, when I'm, the most important decision I make all year is when to pick. And when I'm making that decision, I'm looking at so many things. I'm looking at the numbers because I don't manipulate the wine. So what comes in the winery, the numbers turn into the structure of the wine, the alcohol, the acidity. I'm looking at flavor, I'm looking at aromas, I'm looking at the way the seeds are developing and turning woody, I'm looking at the way the skins are developing. And as important as all that, I'm watching the vines. I'm watching, I'm watching the status of the vines. By then, they're getting pretty tired. It hasn't rained since the spring, and they're, they're on the home stretch, and they're getting very tired. And so that's one of the things I take into account there's an embarrassment of sunshine and heat in California, and we can shrivel grapes up to any old sugar we want, but that's not ripening. So it's not just about the numbers. It's about a different kind of ripeness. Well, ripeness is just a complicated thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not just it's not just numbers. So ripeness happens at different numbers every year, and, and unless you're out there and and watching the vines, you don't really know. That's, that's a piece of it. You know, they give up after a while. They're tired. They're finished. And when that happens, grapes are finished. And it's, so that's, that's one of the challenges is to make everything converge at just the right place and all together at right where you want every component. And that's what a great vintage is, is when all those things converge right where you want them. 
And it seems like the spacing in Kronos is fairly wide. Yeah. In the old days, land was cheaper, wines were cheaper, Paris tasting hadn't happened, and the tractors were big. They came over from the Central Valley, and so they just spaced the rows to get those big tractors through. Now we buy cute little tractors designed for, <laughs> for vineyards from Italy and France, and now John Deere makes a little narrow-gauge tractor, so everything's changed. And do you think that affects the kind of fruit that you're getting, Those that wide spacing between the rows? I think it mostly affects quantity. You know, I'm wasting a lot of good dirt out there. And I think almost every day about interplanting, but then they'd be too close to those soils and the vigor I would expect. What would that vineyard look like if you were to replant it today just the way you wanted it to? How would it be laid out? You know, having farmed it all these years, I, I picture something like six by six instead of eight by ten. Five by six, six by six, right in there would be about right. But it would be all Cabernet again. Oh, yes. It's all Cabernet now. Yeah. And No what's, question. What's loam like? Loam is just a soil scientist term for a soil that has equal parts of the components that make um, soil. It would be sand, clay, and, and silt, I think. And so it's equal parts. So it's very well drained, but it also has good water holding capacity. So it's not like up in the hills where it's extremely well drained. This is well drained and holds water. And the vines use it up. They run out of rain and, and they run out of water, but um, they had plenty of water when they needed it. So that probably helps you in the drier years. The, yeah. Grapevines are tough. You know, in the old days, in the 19th century, they put all the vineyards up in the hills. You can still see grape stakes and terraces up there in fully mature forests. And, you know, they didn't water the vines. And then they would, valley floor was used for food where there was dirt. You know, grapevines will grow just about anywhere. They're tough. Have you had a chance to talk to some of the old-time growers in, in Napa? Sure. What'd they tend to say? There's a lot of wisdom. It's it's a little bit like winemaking there for a while. We were pretty full of ourselves, you know. We were learning so much. And then, you know, the more you know, the less you know. And the more you appreciate what the old timers knew already just from experience. And I, I find that both in vineyards and in winemaking. Is there a certain approach that you find tends to yield the kind of results that you enjoy? It's all about, yes, it's all about the balance between the fruiting parts and the growing parts. So it's a shoot, say, can ripen so much fruit, of a given length can ripen so much fruit. And so it's we're out there balancing that, and all of us have different ideas, but we're all playing with that. And then the other major goal is to get the right amount of air and light into the fruit because it affects the way the flavors evolve. It's hot. We can get nasty heat spells. We have to protect the grapes from sunburn, but we also have to get light into the grapes. So it's it's a balance. And what about those other vineyards that you use for the Napa? What are they like and where are they located? They're all bale loam. They're all between Rutherford and St. Lena. They're, they're in this exactly the same little corner of the world. They vary a little bit. They were replanted. They were all on AXR, and they were replanted over time to different rootstocks. So the ages vary, the rootstocks vary, but the soils are all bale loam. The big difference between those vineyards and Chrono's vineyard, my vineyard, is age. And they're not old St. George. They're more modern clones with bigger berries, bigger clusters. They, they bear better. So if you were to talk about the two wines, what do they tend to be over time? What are the, the similarity and differences? Well, they have a lot in common, but they're very different, actually. I don't know how familiar you are, you are with them, but the Napa always has a lot of bright red and blue fruit sort of Cherries, blueberries, grating into plums, and cassis. And the Kronos is more brooding. It kind of starts with plums and heads into blackberries and darker brooding things. It's just the nature of the vineyard. Do you find that it takes longer for the Kronos to kind of come around for the drinker? or? Yeah, I hold it an extra year in bottle before I release it. And my wines are already really long-lived. I don't really know how long-lived I thought they'd be 20 or 30 year wines, but the early ones are approaching 30 and they're, we had, Mike Madrigali pulled an 87 today at Barbaloo. It was my first vintage. 
And it was a good bottle. They vary a lot by the time they get that old because the corks vary. But um, it was still very lively. It was fruity. So walk me through the vintages and what you learned. 87, and then you get the winery in, in the Kronos parcel in 95. Tell me about those late 80s vintages, early, early 90s vintages, and then moving up to today. What were those vintages like? What did you learn? I think one of the take-home lessons is that the longer, cooler seasons are always my favorite. They play right into my style. They're not the vintages that are most ballyhooed in the press. Very often, I prefer the longer, cooler seasons, even if they're not considered to be great vintages. And that's played out all the way through 11, where it was sort of took cold and (laughs) It wasn't just cool, it was cold all summer, and then it started raining, So, but it got ripe, and it's one of my favorite vintages ever. So, I mean, that's a take-home lesson. I have to stay really close to it in warmer years, where picking decisions are really on a dime, because when it's hot, it's really hot. The vines are getting tired. It's not just that sugar is accumulating fast. It's hard on the vines when it gets really hot that late in the season. So um, those are more difficult vintages for me. I'm usually, after all these years, one of the things I can do that helps me is I can almost always call a pick out four or five days. I'm watched that time of year, well, I, almost every day of the year, I watch the weather four times. It's updated four times a day by the you, the National Weather Service. And so I'm watching the weather, I'm watching the vines, I'm sampling, and as, as it gets close, I'm sampling every day or two. And I can almost always schedule a pick out ahead. And so that's helped me hugely in during heat spells because what happens is people wait, 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 and then they all want to pick at once. And usually I've scheduled. And so in a long, cool season, the picking isn't as critical. It can be a day or two. But if it's hot and the vines are tired and sugars are skyrocketing, it it matters. And I've been able to, I think, just because of experience, I've been able to, in those hotter vintages, still rein it in. And they're still under 14%, but it's um, they're often a little lusher than, than my favorite vintages. And why was it important to you to rein it in, in an era where maybe it wasn't so popular? Well, I started making wine before. There's fashion in wine. And I just wasn't terribly interested in chasing that. I'm not interested in that in any part of my life. And um, I cut my teeth on European wines. And I also had tasted enough of the wonderful old Napa Valley Cabernets to know that Cabernet from that neck of the woods, it's almost a moral imperative for me to make a wine that will be long-lived and do interesting things in the bottle because it's one of the best places in the world for that. We we have all the heat and sunshine we need to get it ripe, even in 2011. But we have, because of the cold nights, the foggy, the fog coming in, we have beautiful natural acidities too. And the tannins in that corner of the world come in feeling like velvet. So the there's lots of tannin. If you were to measure the tannin, you'd get a very big number. But the tannin that it's just tannin isn't one molecule. It's a, it's a class of molecules, and they can be harsh and astringent, and they can be soft and velvety and beautiful. And that's one of the things I love about Benchland there around Rutherford and Salina is that the one there's a wonderful range of of fruit flavors available, but also the tannins are just so luscious and they feel good. So even when they're young, they don't have to be nasty. They don't hurt. Um, it's a misconception that a wine, ha- I think, that a wine has to be painful to be age-worthy. Why do you think the hold for bigger and riper took such root in Napa and say, the 90s? Fashion. You know, I think it was driven by some critics, and I think people were rewarded. And then I think People like, I mean, we all, we all have different moods, different foods. We have different preferences. Um, that became popular. It became fashionable for any number of reasons. It's not the climate. It's not, but it's, it's fashion. I mean, I've been doing this long enough that I've, that's not the only cycle I've seen. We've come in and out of this sort of pick, right? Pick, lower, pick, right? I think the big change 
is that now we understand it better. We're growing better grapes. So we can pick at lower bricks and have true ripeness, where maybe in the late 70s, early 80s, we hadn't we didn't know as much about growing the grapes. And I think sometimes there were was greenness and harshness of tannins that I don't see anymore. When you designed your own winery facility, what did you want to achieve with that? Well, we're farmers and so that's why it's a barn. I truly believe that there's nothing I can do once the grapes come into the winery except stay out of the way and not mess it up. So I think of myself as a farmer more than anything else. My husband happened to have grown up in a family in upstate New York where his great-grandparents, great-grandfathers built barns. And so he grew up loving barns and made barns, you know, models of barns. So I didn't think I'd ever have a winery, but I knew it would be a barn and if I did. And then William had an interest in barns, and he also had been involved in building things, and he'd worked in architects' offices, and he designed our barn. But it's sort of a historical research project as much as anything. There's some beautiful old Victorian age barns in the valley. He basically um, sized it, you know, took elements of those and sized it to my needs. My project's really small. I only make 3,000 cases. So... um, It was a wonderful opportunity to have the control I really needed. I established my label, and I think I did 13 vintages before we finally had our own facility. And you can never be the first priority in someone else's winery. It was a way to get my project going. It was very lean and mean and cost-effective. There was the industry was exploding. There was a lot of people were building wineries with excess capacity that they were someday going to fill. And so it was. It allowed me to to start my project on a shoestring, pulling on my bootstraps, but I never had the control I really needed. So that's it's just wonderful to have my own facility, and I still do custom work for other people now, but I never pack it so that everybody does. Everybody has a tank, <laughs> you know. There's none of the, none of this ripe grapes with nowhere to go. So it's just, I think I have the opportunity to make much better wine in my own facility. It feels like often you're kind of at the right moment. Like you show up and there's not enough winemakers. And so it takes a little bit of time, but not forever to get Mm -hmm. a head job running a fairly big winery. I'm a very lucky duck. It's all timing. You catch a dip in the land prices and the land is undervalued for what it actually is because it's misunderstood. You get the right price. You get to build a winery. And at the same time, before your winery is built, there's a lot of people who have excess capacity and a room for winemaking in their facility. And you're able to, through those kind of situations, here we are. Very lucky. Just, there's no question. It was very, very serendipitous all along. And to, to get out of Davis with the master's degree in winemaking at the end of the 70s, it was just, the world was exploding. The wine world was exploding in California, in Napa, and, and everywhere. So there's been a lot of opportunity for all of us. You have a winery that's on Highway 29. What's it like <laughs> to have that kind of highway frontage? Well, through some pretty tough times over the last 15 years, it's kept my doors open. You know, there's no question that I'm selling a lot more wine direct to consumers than I ever was before, and that location is a big piece of that. My personality would be more comfortable up a, a okay. road into the hills, Richard Hill somewhere, yeah. <laughs> with a gate that would close—not a fancy gate, just a gate that would close. So it's it's awfully public, but it, but that's wonderful too. It's been we've we've had the opportunity to um, make a lot of friends because they can see what we're doing. You've been there. We don't have a tasting room. We just put up barrels in the in the barrel room. So it's kind of fun because nothing else like that is on Highway 29. Everything's a little bit bigger and yeah, a little bit more guided tour style. We use all every space two or three times. <laughs> Who are some of the people that work for you in the winery? Well, over the years, um, Philip Titus was my assistant at Chapelet. He took the winemaking job when I left, and he's still there making the wine. He's doing a great job. Um, Mia Klein was one of my assistant winemakers at Chapelet. She makes the Celine wines today. 
Um, I she, could see you two getting along. Oh, she's one of my favorite people in the whole world. And she, I hired, hired interns every year at Fremark Abbey, and she was an intern one year, and she was so good that I hired her full time. She had to go back to school and finish, but I hired her the second, I mean, before she even went back. Um, she worked for me for a few more years and then went off and did lots of other things, among them her own her own label, which is wonderful, Celine. Uh, Gerald Rowland has his own label. After a while, once I started my own project, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have any staff. You know, I grow the grapes, make the wine, run the winery, sell the wine. So after a while, I didn't. After I left Chapley, I didn't really have a staff. Because that's you can do that. At I did do everything. Cases like you can three thousand case kind of limit of doing it by yourself. I think right. Yeah, I have a couple of guys that now that we have Kronos Vineyard, I two guys between the vineyard and the winery, it's pretty much full-time job work to do the cellar work and then the vineyard work. And then part-time office management. It's really only since the Highway 29 needing to be able to be hospitable and welcome people to the winery that we have more employees because it just takes a fair amount of staffing. But um, the production is still just two people and me. I job the all the analysis goes to a local lab. It's really simple. What was it like trying to sell the wines in the early days? Well, in the early earliest days, there weren't nearly as many wineries. I was a new kid on the block. I think women in the business have, for better or worse, kind of stuck out like sore thumbs, and so I think that there was a pretty high profile for those of us that were doing it. There were a lot more distributors. The world you, was complete. It was it was pre-internet. There was more distributors back then. Way more distributors, multiple of what there are now. There's been a lot of consolidation. So in those days, I was pretty big. It, I felt small, but it was 1,800 cases, and so I was forced to immediately go to the three-tier system and set up national distribution. I was really lucky in the press in those days. Um, I released my first wine in 1990. And only at the end, after I'd already sold all most of it, the um, New York Times did a piece on the on my project in the um, what do they call it the Sunday Time Magazine. Time Magazine. I oh, think. sure, the New Times York Times Magazine. Magazine. Yeah. Um, so in those days, I was new kid on the block. There weren't very many wineries. When I moved to the Napa Valley, there were thirty wineries. Now there are almost five hundred. So it, there was a time when it wasn't hard. And then real life settles in, and you're not the new kid on the block. The economy goes south. Fashion changes. Fashion and wine change. So it's been up and down. It's been cycles. And what have you learned through that? I mean, what's important to you? Just keep throwing spaghetti at the wall until something sticks, I guess. And we've had to be pretty nimble because what worked 30 years ago, 25 years ago, just doesn't work anymore. So for me, it's a combination. The sorts of things that have kept my doors open are direct-to-consumer sales. The Being on Highway 29 has been a huge help. And just just holding steady. You know, I think a label needs to stand for something. And that's why one of the reasons I wasn't interested in following fashion, because I think the great wines of Europe stand for something, that a label stands, a house stands for something. So it's really just sort of holding, <laughs> holding my breath and hoping for the best, really, and just being stubborn. But it seems like now the fashion's kind of in your camp. Yeah, it's come back around. Thank goodness. What do you think that you would attribute that to? Oh, you know, I think it's partly a maturity of consumers. I think wines that are balanced and elegant are more interesting after a while, I think they age better. They they grace the table better. I think that's part of it. I think there's, I think there's a lot. It's much more democratic. The the wine criticism. It's there are a lot more voices, and it's the internet mostly, so that there's room for a lot more diversity now. I think it's just cycles. It's just cycles. If someone were going to try to start up a winery in Napa today. They seem smart, they seem capable, they seem new. What would you tell them? Well, if I were coming out of school today, I'd probably still work in Napa, but if I wanted to buy vineyard, 
or start a project, I would look farther afield. I think they're really exciting new places all over. California is a big, diverse place. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of what it can do. Different varieties are better in different places. And so I think if if I were starting now, I'd, I'd be opening up my blinders. There, there's great opportunity all over the place. So I don't know, just, just don't take no for an answer. You know, you've been making wine there for quite a long time, but it feels like you're still fairly young. You could be making it wine there for quite a bit longer. I hope so. <laughs> How do you see it in 15, 20 years? What's the Napa Valley going to look like? What's your prediction? I don't know. I think, I think our biggest challenge is development. We're very close to the Bay Area geographically, and I think that's a huge um, pressure. So, so I don't really know. I do know that I hope I'm making wine when I'm 99, and I don't really care what fashion does. Um, I just, I just, you know, I want to be making wine. I don't want to be, I don't want to be running a desk as much as I do today. I don't want to be worrying about making payroll. I just want to make wine. So that's my goal is to, it'll probably get smaller and smaller instead of bigger and bigger because it'd be easier to wrap my mind around it and me around it. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the valley's going to look like. I know it'll still be a great place to grow Cabernet and that's what matters to me. What have been your favorite vintages over the years if you were to put oh, a few out there? I know you said the cooler ones, but what 2001. Is and then the eleven is really turning heads. I, we tasted some a whole range of elevens today, and they're just beautiful wines. Um, you, you need to be a little bit more careful with the elevens because there were vineyards that didn't get fully right, but the ones that did have this beautiful floral perfume that I just love across the valley. Other vintages that I love: oh five, ninety one, ninety seven is coming around really beautifully it's hard it's it's hard to to play favorites really because they all have a different personality and i'm so lucky to grow grapes in a place where i can almost always get my grapes ripe and therefore i can make good wine because they're great vineyards are there other producers in napa today that you think i really like those wines i think that there's a huge sea change going on and I'm really looking forward to see what happens in the next few years. I think the 2010, 2011, really cool vintages, along with what was already a sea change going on, I think is really a nice convergence of uh, people thinking, not everybody. I mean, I, I hope the people that are good at making the big Napa Cabernets keep doing it because they're good at it. And I think we need diver- more diversity, not less. But I do like the idea of not being the Lone Ranger out there. Do you think it helps you reach different markets? I mean, were there markets that were kind of closed off to you in terms of geographic or types of restaurants that maybe are now more open? Certainly. Yeah, it's just, it's fashion. It's my wine style is more fashionable. So it's it's good. I think there's also been the ascendancy of, of sommeliers. That's happened too in that time. And I think that, that has played well into my style because my wines do well with food. So now that you are, as you said, more in the, in fashion, your style of winemaking, would you be open to consulting projects or projects coming your way? Or No. No, I, I worked for other people for far too long. Um, not only did I do I grow the grapes, make the wine, run the winery, sell the wine, I have two daughters and they're almost 18 and 21 tomorrow. And um, I just had way too many hats on my head for one pointy little head. And so, no, I, as I loved making wine for other people and there were times during the great recession that I thought, wow, maybe I, maybe I should make wine for other people again. And I'd like to do that on one level, but I have way too much to do already. And, um, I'm trying to get my ducks in a row so that in 10 years when I'm over 70, I'll be able to 
still do what I love to do, and that's make wine. One of the things that you've done over a number of years is hold some wine back that you've made. What have been the benefits of that philosophy for you? Well, I just think these vineyards deserve to be made in a style that will develop in the bottle. And so um, that's always been part of my style. And from the very beginning, I've held libraries back. And um, I'd always stop selling the wine at 200 cases, and it would dribble down to 100, and then I'd lock it down. And so I have really good libraries of older wines. Then I re-release them when they're lit up. They go through ups and downs. But somewhere in the between 8 and 12 years, depending on the vintage, they blossom. They're still young and fruit-driven, but they've had enough time in the bottle to do all those beautiful tertiary and secondary things. And they these vineyards develop a really pretty floral perfume most years, some violets and lavender and rose petals um, that I just love. And so that's, I call it the sweet spot for my wines. One of the sweet spots is that sort of 10-year range. So I love to have hold them, and then I re-release them to club and then to top wine lists in New York and California. Have you seen wine clubs and direct mail become more and more important to the Napa Valley scene? Huge. As it becomes more and more difficult, as the three-tier system becomes more and more broken for small family wineries, and as slowly the laws open up for selling direct to consumers across the country, it's really, it's really allowing a lot of small family wineries to be in business. And the reason for that is? It's not because the margin is terribly better. It is better, but it's not huge. It's, for me, it's, it's better than selling in the three-tier system where I immediately give half of it away. But it's probably not quite as good as when I sell wine wholesale in California and I don't have a distributor. So there, there, there are huge costs involved in selling wine. But what I find is that there's a lot of loyalty People that have been to the winery, people that have more of a connection are, are very loyal. And as it's gotten harder and harder out there in the three-tier system, New York is the only major exception that's still working really well for me with Michael Skernick. It's supplanted sales that used to go elsewhere. So as a producer, do you have more inclination to say, you know, I have this special bottling with age on it or this special release. I think I might send it to the wine club rather than put it through distribution. Well, with the library wines, I, I don't want them out in distribution. You know, it's, they're more, they go to special wine lists, people that want them. I don't have much, I don't have much to sell. And so I don't re-release them to general distribution. I just don't have enough. And by then, um, I don't have enough for retail or off-sale licenses. I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's my general question. I mean, do you see wineries dedicating more resources, whether it be hospitality or in what they're offering to wine clubs rather than to? Absolutely. That's what's keeping people in business, that everything has changed. Three-tier distribution is really big companies selling to big companies. And that's great, but it just doesn't work. There's been so much... Consolidation. I've been with big distributors over the years where it worked pretty well until they either gobbled other companies up or got gobbled up until the companies became so big, salespeople wouldn't even know I was in their book. So, you know, that's been a that's been a slow evolution to the point now where new projects have a very difficult time finding three-tier distribution at all. It's just completely log jammed. So most small family wineries do work very hard on the direct-to-consumer. So at the same time, channel. The distribution has gotten harder for the small family winery. The shipping laws have opened up and allowed more legality to ship. Mm-hmm. And that allows an opening. And I think that's unstoppable. It's, it's the internet. It's getting far enough away from prohibition. All those weird laws came into place right after prohibition. And so slowly it's breaking down, and I think it's unstoppable. The biggest hurdle is shipping, and that's will be figured out too. You know, just getting wine to people and is expensive. You're seeing a more loyal consumer rather than maybe that fickle sommelier. Well, some psalms are very loyal, but but I think 
especially at the retail level, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of loyalty. And projects come and go, you know, they're the new kid on the block for a while and then 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 you need to wait and see what what they've got over time. If you had it to do over again, would you do it the same? What would there have been changes that you would make if you could look back over your career and say, you know that thing? I don't know about that. Not winemaking wise. I feel like I've been able to do exactly what I set out to do and what I wanted to do. I'm not a terribly good business person. And eventually, only a few years ago, I started getting help from people that knew how to sell wine. I would have done that sooner. I just want to make wine. And all I really care about is selling it so I can make it next year. <laughs> you know, I'm not a terribly good business person. So it's helped to get some help there. Kathy Corson, she just wants to make wine in the way that she likes to make it. Thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Kathy Corson of the Corson Winery in Napa Valley. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. And you also make a Gewürztraminer. I do, but I'm just goofing around. It's about 150 cases. The grapes don't come from Napa Valley. It's far too warm for Gewürz. So I go up to Anderson Valley and pick two and a half tons of old vine Gewürztraminer and make a wine that's inspired by Alsatian wines. I love Alsatian wines for their sort of Germanic, aromatic white characteristics, but made with French sensibilities. It's That's a part of the world that's been sort of traded back and forth. So, you know, I can't make Alsatian wine, but that's the inspiration. Is there another grape variety that if you had the chance you'd like to make? Garnacha. Oh, yeah? Why is that? I just love it. You know, it, it I don't think it'll be in this lifetime, just like I would I would love to be a sommelier, but I don't think that'll happen in my lifetime either. You know, running out. 